Hello and welcome to Inside Track from Trustonic. This podcast brings together some of the leading minds from the mobile and automotive security industries to really get under the skin of how those worlds have been shaped, what drives them today, and what we can expect in the future. So please take a listen as we go beyond the headlines with the experts and market makers in their field. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with two of our favorite industry insiders from the world-renowned analyst firm, CCS Insight. Founder and CEO, Sean Collins, and Ben Wood, who has been Chief of Research since 2006. We've been around now since uh, 1993. Prior to that, I worked at Motorola for eight, for six years, um, so from 1988 to 1993. So I've been in the mobile quite a long time, and for 10 years, I was a one-man band. But in, early, in the early 2000s, I decided to change the way the business came about and become a, a more traditional analyst house in terms of the profile of the business, but deliver our analysis our knowledge and our experience into the business in a different way, with a more high-touch model. I don't know, Ben, if you want to pick up on that as well. No, I think that's a good summary of where we are, Sean, and I, I think it's being the eyes and ears on the market, providing good insights to all of our customers from the perspective of a very fast-moving and exciting marketplace. Yeah, and, and you know, having been a long time, I can still say that it's still the type of industry that I'm genuinely proud to say I'm involved in if somebody asks me what I do. So after over 30, well, nearly 30 years in this industry. And then, and then the last thing I'd say is that we have a predictions event, which has become, this is our, this would have been our 14th year of doing it live, but of course circumstances prevented that and we changed it up a little bit this year. But it's a way of us saying, okay, it's great what's happened in the last year or so, but what does that mean going forward? And for predictions, think thought leadership. And we take into account all of the experience, the knowledge and the analysis that we've brought together in the last 12 months. We talk to our clients and we project out for the next year or so, sometimes a little bit further than that, what we feel the impact of those changes may be going forward in our industry. And that's very important to many of our clients to be able to deliver that into their strategic and sometimes tactical planning in how they understand the structure, the rhythm and the development of their market in the next 12, 24 months. But as you say, it's become a, a real totem pole for the industry in terms of understanding a fulcrum for understanding what's going on over the next few years in bringing that. And then we complement that by bringing in a small but very senior number of speakers to reflect on those predictions from their position operating in those very senior lofty levels of organizing those businesses to achieve some of those things that we're talking about. Yeah, it's, I've always reflected on the fact that you guys are not shy of sort of putting your your opinions out there and your views out there you stand by them very well i think one of my favorite things about the predictions events are actually when you take a look back and you acknowledge clearly kind of where you were right and where you landed it right on the money but you're also incredibly brave and humble in terms of pointing out where some of those predictions may have kind of gone awry slightly more often than not they're just slightly more delayed actually or sometimes they've happened a little bit faster so i, th I find it's very interesting it's nine times out of ten they've either landed right on the money or it's just a timing issue but i do like it and i think you know it generates kind of huge resonance and respect across the industry the fact that you know you guys are i think pretty much the only outfit that will quite happily sort of put a stake in the ground and obviously go out across the industry with quite some in some cases very bold predictions but it's great you know i think it kind of generates some huge insight and i think that you can probably only get to that position with that degree of confidence given sort of the collective not only kind of experience that you've got in the industry obviously time is a wonderful thing but you know if you have sort of 30 years in an industry that can be 
30 years of genuine, diverse experience with great reach, or that can be, you know, one year's worth of experience repeated 30 times, right? <laughs> so time is not necessarily the purest indicator of having that, that industry reach and knowledge. But you guys do, a, as I said, an exceptional job at punching incredibly well above your weight relative speaking in terms of number of analysts and, and execs in terms of the reach and the pull that you have. And obviously you've got most of the industry titans appearing at predictions events or other events with you and you you kind of have them on speed dial, both of you, which is obviously a fantastic accolade. So um, congrats on all of the success to date. And I think obviously you guys are on for uh, a stellar future, maintaining huge degree of relevance moving forward. So very, very welcome and absolutely ecstatic to have you guys kind of joining us today to have a bit of a natter about some of the insights that are happening within the industry today. But also, I wanted to kind of have a quick scan back. Obviously, I think collectively between us, we're probably knocking on for around 70 years worth of collective experience in the industry, which is quite a depressing stat when I was fumbling around with it over the weekend. So I think it's quite interesting. But I think really what's quite insightful and, and quite unique is just if we think about the industry and where it's going, clearly there's lots of change happening. There's an awful lot of movement and development, which is hugely exciting and interesting. But I think it's also quite good to have a look back. So clearly history doesn't repeat itself, certainly not in the technology sector, but history does have a habit of, of rhyming to a certain degree. So it'd be interesting to kind of start by looking back at some of like the key lenses of the industry over the past sort of 20, 30 years, and just trying to think about some of the empires that we've seen rise from relative obscurity and quite humble beginnings to be absolute titans of an industry, and then seemingly almost overnight in some instances disappearing off and dwindling down or you know, practically back into obscurity again. So it'd be quite interesting if we kind of thought about you know, how that's happened from handset manufacturer perspective, software perspective, also, in addition to verticals, potentially how that's happened from a global perspective as well, how that shift has happened around the geographies. But perhaps, Ben, you could kick us off with some thoughts about some of the handset manufacturers and how they've obviously shifted in quite a dramatic fashion over time. What's driven the rise, but more importantly, what's driven the fall and how can the current sort of titans of today learn from some of those mistakes and avoid the same fate moving forward? Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's absolutely remarkable that between us, we've lived through so many generations of technology already. So cast your mind back to the, the 1980s, brands that people don't even think of in mobile phones now, like uh, Panasonic and NEC were uh, defining where the industry went. Then we move on to the 1990s when Sean was at Motorola. They were the number one mobile phone manufacturer by uh, share and value during that period. 95 to 2000, you saw neck and neck between Nokia and Motorola and then Nokia roaring forward in the early 2000s to uh, an unimaginable level of market share, you know, knocking on the door of 40, 45% share by volume, uh, which looked like an unassailable position. But quietly, people were chipping away at that. From 2008, we saw Samsung being number two in the marketplace. And if you look over the long period of time, they're arguably one of the most successful manufacturers in terms of consistent performance across nearly two decades now. They rose to be the largest manufacturer in 2011. They've pretty much stuck there, apart from a few odd quarters where they've been overtaken. And then the one that everybody would think of would be Apple, the way in which Steve Jobs disrupted the market in January 2007 when he pulled the iPhone out of his pocket and you know, I'm happy to put my hand up and say 
at the time, it, it didn't look like it was going to be the right product in the environment we were living in, the power of the operators, no subsidy, refusal to kind of bend to the, the things that the operators wanted. But that turned out very, very differently. And although Apple is not number one in volume now in terms of value, it's extracting a disproportionate amount of value and profitability from the industry. Final twist is, of course, the ascendancy of the Chinese manufacturers now, the rise of Huawei from 2014 uh, until around the middle of last year when the geopolitical landscape saw them coming under pressure uh, with the sanctions from the US. But now this spectrum of Chinese manufacturers, Oppo, Vivo, Xiaomi, Realme, many, many different players in the marketplace. So what can we take away from that as a learning lesson? No room for complacency. How the mighty have fallen. Nokia, the perfect example, but Motorola, Ericsson, Sony Ericsson, all of those guys are a good example of that. But also how the market has changed quite fundamentally from the early days of a voice interaction with a mobile phone where you held it to your ear and talked to it to now this very visual interaction with the phone that we see today. It's amazing, isn't it, how we can kind of go through that entire span and not only kind of consider the handset manufacturers themselves, but also the role that the OS plays in that as well. So, you know, we've just kind of gone through a whistle-stop tour there and and we, we've not even mentioned Microsoft or BlackBerry, for example, you know, two absolutely massive industry titans that, again, sort of fell by the wayside in mobile to a certain degree. And then obviously Microsoft kind of making a comeback in other areas across the board. But very interesting, you know, the implications and ramifications back into the software layer as well. I don't know, Sean, it's kind of something that, that you've looked at consistently over time. And there's been some interesting fluctuations there as well. Yeah, I, I think... The industry was pretty much the same as it had been every year, apart from scale, up until about 2007, 2008. And then I think the advent of both smartphone and the bringing of a computing experience onto a mobile device became something that started to make us rethink a couple of things. First of all, we had the ability with the emergence of 3G and then most importantly 4G to have broadband connectivity that allowed the compute to be released properly. And I think, and this is, I think is undersold sometimes, is the emergence of the app ecology, allowing us to do so many different things so often on the same device with the same level of experience, understanding, and I think effectiveness on a handset in our pockets uh, has, has radically changed the way that connectivity and mobility has started to seem to us as individuals, and in many cases, quietly and over a period of time. Of course, Apple's at the forefront of that, but Google have had a huge part to play in that, and you didn't mention Google. The, the advent of Android in the, the late 2008, 9, 10 kind of time has been much more transformative for more people in more places than iOS, which is generally seen or has been seen in the past as a relatively expensive device, although Apple, of course, owns the headlines, owns a lot of the value as well. Android has 85% market share in the world in terms of the smartphone market. And we still see a very vibrant uh, feature phone market, which is, it stubbornly resists the advent of the smartphone, largely through value and cost, of course, but in other parts of the world. So software has come to become a significant part of the mobile industry in just the same way as it became a very central part of the PC industry in the 80s and the 90s. And what we're seeing is that move to a software-defined kind of experience on very attractive hardware, don't get me wrong, that's not to say that Hardware is not very important. It's also it's what we're seeing also in the network. I think the networks largely haven't changed from what their basic purpose has been for the last probably 30 years to provide the best coverage they can in, the, in most places for most people 
most often. But clearly, we have some challenges with that as an industry, but that's that's the nature of the topography of the life that we live. But nonetheless, to be able to deliver that from a network has been central to that. What we're seeing with the emergence, particularly of 5G, the collision of computing at the edge of the network, in particular in 5G, and the potential that delivers, and the software defining of a new network going forward means that we're starting to see software defining not just our devices, but our network. It's, it's fascinating to watch these industries form almost in front of our eyes. It excites me every day. It is truly amorphous, isn't it? It's amazing how the fluctuations and the movements happen. And again, all seemingly with without kind of us sort of realizing inch by inch, day by day, I think we often take it for granted working in this industry, the scale and the speed of the changes. I know obviously other colleagues that work in, in other industries. I have a, a good friend that works in the shipping industry. And he said, look, the last sort of innovation we had was GPS. And before that, it was moving stuff from bags into containers. So he's measuring <laughs> sort of innovation in decades, whereas we're kind of measuring it in days and weeks sometimes. So I think it's, it's quite interesting. And it's interesting the point you make on the on the App Store model as well. I remember when we launched the iPhone first in the UK, which was the first market after the States, and that was an exclusive deal on O2 at the time. I, I do recall on, on sort of iPhone 1, the App Store was notably absent and lacking. So it's something that's often overlooked, that it wasn't actually originally part of the plan from Apple's perspective. It only really emerged when devices started to get jailbroken and people were actually kind of putting little applets or running programs on the devices. Steve Jobs in particular felt as though that sort of interfered with the purity and the beauty of the UI on the device. But, you know, it became very obvious very quickly that there was money to be made there just through the sheer creativity of tapping into the crowd of developers all over the world. And it just turns into obviously this just huge juggernaut of revenue for Apple and, and Google today. And you also point out, rightly so, that Google, you know, running at what around sort of 85% global market share as it stands today. That's interesting. And it sort of leads us sort of and links the two points together quite nicely in the sense that, you know, there have been empires that have risen and fallen we don't logically see the downfall of either Apple or Google as it stands at the moment, but 85% market share does feel pretty lofty as a position. And one could be accused of thinking, well, potentially the only way for them to go is down from there. How would you sort of react to that in terms of the challenges that could arise? Where might they come from? Or do you see them sort of sticking to that 85% and even growing it in the fullness of time? Well, I'll pick that one up. And I'll, I think from my perspective, you mentioned earlier this concept of you know, all these other platforms that used to exist, uh, the BlackBerry operating system, the fact that Microsoft, the mighty Microsoft, was unable to bring a platform to market that was sustainable with Windows Phone and Windows Mobile over the years is still is astonishing to me. And then it's amazing how Microsoft have now pivoted. We saw other platforms like Palm OS being developed which were, 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 and WebOS and others but we are at this crossroads right now, which has been forced upon the industry by the technological cold war between the US and China, insofar as Huawei, who were emerging to be a very, very solid number three, knocking on the door of being number two and very much disrupting Samsung. And even, depending on how you measure it, even nudging number one spot for one quarter, had to seek an alternative solution because of the sanctions placed on Huawei in particular, around access to Google's full version of Android. And we see the Harmony operating system being touted as a possible contender as an alternative. But I still 
find it very, very difficult to believe that uh, Huawei on their own will be able to displace uh, Android in the near term. I think that there are some home market advantages, but it doesn't come as any surprise to me that Huawei has actually decided to lean heavily on the open source variant of Android, the Android open source platform, because of the whole ecosystem that goes around devices and, of course, the ease with which those applications that you just talked about, the apps and, and how much uh, consumers depend on those, the ease with which they can bring those to a new platform. So there may be a long-term vision for Huawei to bring a new platform online. But in my mind, I don't see any meaningful rival to Android or iOS in the next three to five years. Mm, interesting. There's a prediction for you, Sean, to headline the next event with. Any, any thoughts you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Ben. I think we've moved way past the, the empires that were built in the devices space were built on outstanding hardware. And hardware now is not the defining factor of what a product differentiates itself by. We, we might be getting back there, and I'm sure Ben will talk about that in a minute. But I think for the, in, the, in the recent past, the smartphone has come to be defined as that monoblock of screen and, and battery, really. And we're trying to define it differently by things like quality of camera, which is still... That's not to decry that. That's a very important differentiation point. But nonetheless, we're not talking so much about the shape of the phone, the battery size of the phone, quite as much as we were in the past. The interesting form factor or, or anything else for that matter, it tends to be iOS or Android. They tend to be two religions which people stick to reasonably rigidly, either through cost or through favoritism. And I can't see that changing in the medium to long term. I think one of the factors that we haven't seen in our industry probably until the last five years has been tech nationalism, I think, which has come to dominate both the rhythm and I think the, the prospects for this marketplace. The technological, the battle that's going on right now between the United States and China, telecoms and technology is right in the middle of it. I mean, it couldn't be more central to it. And what's clear is that they have had a symbiotic relationship uh, as two nations over the last probably 15 years, uh, one taking from the other in terms of either the production facility or the technological know-how and building together a very, very strong overall platform, whether that's in devices or networks, or in some cases, software and so forth. But the coming battle around taking ownership, both for things like 5G for AI, and the rollout of the more complicated networks in our marketplace going forward, and the commensurate control of the data we generate, I think is going to be absolutely where the battle lies. And that tech nationalism, that geographical challenge, will come to define how our world develops over the next probably five to 10 years. And it may be that we see China becoming almost, if you, I don't mean this quite this way, but an island of itself in terms of the technological development that it's able to do. And as Ben quite rightly pointed out, you can be a, a top five or top 10, I think, producer of devices and brand in China and probably be nudging into the top five in the world these days. So, you know, it's it, the rhythm of the marketplace is changing a little bit in that. In that. And we hadn't seen that 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, obviously, if you stack up the top Android handset manufacturers, you just pass out Samsung for a moment and potentially LG. Pretty much everybody else in that bucket is a Chinese handset manufacturer right? that's, that's running on that operating system in a meaningful way on a global basis. Anyway, obviously, there are a number of Indian players as well sort of ascending as it stands at the lower end and also some in, in Africa. But, you know, China is the, the lion's share. So I think you're absolutely right in the sense that, you know, Huawei making any dramatic moves on its own away from an open source Android-based operating system is going to be tough nut to crack with something like Harmony OS. However, 
it all depends, as you say, on this kind of technological Cold War and how that pans out. The rest of the handset manufacturers in China will probably be, be sort of shifting around nervously in their seats, waiting to see how this, this plays out. But I can imagine that they'll be certainly thinking, you know, in a very Chinese way, in the sense that their timelines are well beyond the, the five or even 10 year mark and how that actually kind of goes from, from then on. Yeah, so, no, I mean, I'd add to that as well, Dion, insofar as um, I think your observation of the long-term planning schedule that the Chinese have is something that we need to consider. So if I reflect on a prediction from last year, we talked about the fact that you know, we did see the rise of a homegrown Chinese operating system during mm -hmm. 2020, which has come to fruition with the discussions around Harmony, which, as I said, I don't mm -hmm. see emerging in the next three to five years. But if the Chinese government firmly got behind that, the kind of law of unintended consequences of what the Trump administration has done in terms of stymieing Huawei's growth and placing severe sanctions on them could result in the fact that the, the, the Chinese government say, well, we have to get behind a platform that has its DNA based in China. And that could see a situation where if you want to launch a product or a service in China, arguably the biggest, fastest growing market in the world, you would be compelled to have a Harmony OS version of your app and a Harmony OS compliant piece of hardware that would work in that marketplace. And that could, by default, over that longer period of time, drive the ascendancy of a platform that we wouldn't expect today. Combine that with one of my predictions from this year, which is the US administration, irrespective of the outcome of the kind of you know, future shape of, of the administration, China remains a bipartisan topic in the US, and therefore it's highly likely that they will continue to play whack-a-mole with Chinese manufacturers. <laughs> and they've targeted Huawei already. They've done a lot of damage to Huawei, and I think they've done enough damage now that you know, Huawei are firmly on the back foot. Who's next? And that uncertainty could provoke a kind of coalition of the willing and a certain amount of national champion status <laughs> inside China to try and build an alternative platform. Yeah, I, I think it could have, as you say, quite a galvanizing effect. So, you know, I think the short term consequences of the actions, as you say, driving sort of short term ramifications for the likes of Huawei. But I said, you know, as you mentioned, the galvanizing effect in the sort of the five year plus time frame could be quite different. I think, you know, we could all be sat here in, in sort of five to seven years looking at, at quite a different scenario. But but we'll see. I'm sure, Sean, you'll be retired on your yacht by then, I should imagine. But uh... <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could tell you that was true. <laughs> Speaking of money, though, I think one of the things that's quite interesting is the cost that sits within the mobile ecosystem and how that's kind of shifted around over time. I know we're kind of sticking to the subject of devices fairly tightly at the moment, but you know, even beyond that, if you think about like the costs inherent in acquiring even the the license spectrum to run a network, the capex to build that out, so obviously over its various versions of technology, all the way up to 5G as it stands at the moment and beyond, and then obviously the opex to run it. These are all kind of heading, I suppose, with the exception of license costs having peaked what way back in the early 2000s with the 3G license, sort of, we'll call it a debacle, but it was quite the bonus for the various governments, particularly across Europe at the time. But I think all the rest of the costs in the system, you know, obviously heading increasingly north, whereas the ability for operators to drive ARPU back up in a positive direction is, is increasingly challenging. It'd be good just to kind of get your 
view and perhaps Sean I can start from your perspective in terms of you know the rising costs of, of running deploying and building out the networks and then you kind of juxtapose that with the revenue that many of those operators are securing from their their current customer base there's obviously quite a challenge there I think it's a very very good question where are the costs where are the revenue how do you make money and I think that operators are constantly challenged with this let's not get too upset for operators they still have a huge customer base who are paying them regularly for a service which they have to buy the spectrum and roll the network out clearly but is also ring fenced for them by that licensing so they don't have unexpected competition coming at a different angle from them they have over the top providers who are seeking to use their networks to provide other services and load them in a certain way that perhaps they don't get the best value out of but that's not that's not part of the discussion. That said, I think depending on which parts of the world you're looking at, operators are challenged with a couple of things. The first one probably and the most important one is they would challenge regulation and the way regulation controls both the way that they are able to move their pricing, particularly in, in Europe, but also in the structure of the marketplace in which they operate, which of course also has an impact on how they can generate both pricing and revenue as a result. So I think that's the first thing. And I think as a result of those, the balance sheets, particularly in Europe being challenge because of some of that regulation. They are looking for other areas that move the needle. And I think there's a couple of areas they're trying to do that. The first one, as you quite rightly point out to, is if you sit to an operator today, if your business model, set your business model as, I'm not sure many would look at the subsidized handset market as a way forward for them in the long term. It clearly has been a very, very effective business model for them in the past 25 or 30 years. But I think the combination of significantly rising handsets at scale, and people often say to me, well, hang on a minute, when you first started short, handsets were more expensive than they are now. That's true, but we were selling 5,000 a month, not yeah, half a million a month. Exactly. At scale means that you have to take into account the way your balance sheet is constructed to take into account the fact that over a long period of time, you've subsidized a handset in which you have to get the money back. And they're looking, I think, very carefully at how they can manage that. And you've seen as a result of that, a variety of things emerge. First of all, you've seen things like in the UK and elsewhere, handset installment plans, which allows them to operators to find a way to recognize the, the revenue or shall we say the cost of those handsets in a slightly different way on the balance sheet, but also encourages different propositions to the end user. Very good, fantastic. Mm -hmm. The second one is I think that we're looking at the way that handsets can be priced to the, to the end user. And some of that's around things like trading programs, and I'll let Ben talk about that and handset prices in a minute because that's important. And the third thing is, do they realistically believe that in a, a marketplace where most individuals, particularly in 5G, expect there to be a level of unlimited data access to the network for data, that they can move the needle by just putting their prices up in a price-controlled environment? Very unlikely. So how do you move the needle in your balance sheet and in your EBITDA, which is the way that they assess themselves in terms of success and free, free cash flows? The other one that they use the way you do that is by releasing one of your biggest cash flow blocks, and that is by looking at refinancing in a different way the handset subsidy marketplace, particularly when they're very expensive and there's an awful lot of them. So I think mm. cost has changed a lot for the way that operators do it. The next most important thing for them, of course, is network infrastructure, but that's not for today. And they're looking at how they can do that with new technology like OpenRAN and ORAN and open source types of environments for a software defined network, which allows them to both have better control over their network and I think a more, more diverse provider of network at that point. So I think handsets is a very important, high focus, high intensity part of their business that they're constantly trying to understand how to do better for the end user, but also to release some of that out 
and some of that cost out into the, the balance sheet. So then, Ben, if you want to extend on that a little bit. I think the only thing I would say, Sean, is I've been a little bit alarmed by the speed with which we've seen price erosion on 5G handsets. You know, Apple can command the premium and margin that they want. In fact, the latest crop of iPhone 12 devices are more expensive than the iPhone 11. But for everybody else, it's somewhat of a race to the bottom. And it does worry me that as an industry, when we have this unique opportunity of a disruption, a new technology, something that will be a building block for the next 10 years of innovation, that we're already seeing 5G handsets that are less than $200 uh, starting to uh, come into the channel in markets like China and will spread undoubtedly into the rest of the world during 2021. On the economics of 5G, the most common question that I get asked at the moment is, what is the application for 5G? People are questioning what value that brings. I'm still a firm believer on the three pillars of speed, and I'm not talking about gigabit speeds. I'm talking about a reliable 50 to 100 megabits per second, which would be a game changer for most people. Capacity, uh, which is always going to be important as people use their devices more for richer experiences. And of course, latency, which we're not seeing today because the current crop of 5G networks don't support those benefits. But as the technology evolves, uh, we will see that arriving. So when people challenge me on why do I want 5G, uh, there's a near-term story today, which is a 5G handset is a future-proof purchase. Buying a handset today that doesn't have 5G would be like buying a a TV that wasn't HD ready a decade ago, it, it would be a crazy thing to do because people are keeping handsets for so much longer, you know, three, mm. four years, if not more. Also, residual values on devices are very important now. So if you want to trade your device in, having the latest technology uh, will be advantageous. And I firmly believe that many of the groundbreaking, disruptive 5G applications will emerge in coming years. And they are things that, in, in most cases, we haven't even thought of yet. So it's a very, very exciting time for the industry. It's amazing, isn't it? When you think about the cost of devices, you know, even if we just kind of take something that's relatively stable as a point in time, just the flagship devices of, let's say, Samsung and Apple, and we take those and plot them over the last 10 years, I think, you know, clearly the first iPhone running at about, what was that, about 350 euros, something like that, maybe a bit higher than that. Obviously, well, now well over a thousand. Same thing with the Samsung Galaxy range starting in the 300s, now well over a thousand. But by the same token, at the other end of the market, the smartphone experience seems to be reaching ever more people in emerging markets as well with some just incredible price points that are able to be touched in different parts of the world. I know it's always a how long is a piece of string and a very challenging question, Ben, but what are your thoughts in terms of have we touched all of the edges yet in terms of device pricing? Are we there now in terms of topping out from a, a pricing perspective? Or as Sean mentioned, is it that because we're in a position where we have ever more creative ways of, of subsidizing and financing these on the balance sheet, that it then almost becomes akin to like a vehicle licensing or leasing model where, as you say, the trading price becomes more important and you just kind of resign yourself to the fact that you're going to pay X euros per month from now until the end of time and you'll trade in devices as you go. And actually, the retail price of that particular handset is, is probably less and less important and therefore allows them, the handset manufacturers to push up into higher price points still. I mean, it's interesting to kind of try and extrapolate where it might go, but obviously you're uh, much better placed than I am to put some thought into that. I'd answer that question from a slightly different perspective, which is 
mean, the first thing was I always thought that the thousand dollar, thousand euro, thousand pound threshold was one that would be difficult to break through. It's still a problematic price point, but we've seen no end of devices now that are well in excess of a thousand dollars. But I think the reason we've got to that point is partly because of the amount of value that people place on their mobile phone. This is the most important piece of technology in most people's lives. It's the first thing many people pick up in the morning, and it's the last piece of technology they put down in the evening. And therefore, the perceived value of that device and the value of connectivity, which is a result of the pandemic, has become considerably more important than it ever was before. And I think has been a you know a very important kind of ray of hope in fact in in a tough time and a tough environment for providers of connectivity be that fixed or mobile connectivity finally being recognized to for the fact that the investments they're making will help you educate your children from school or carry on with your business on a remote basis and i think that that's going to set things up nicely going forward in the future and then back to your your point in terms of you know where are the edges of price points People, we have been shown that they they will pay a huge premium for uh, a very special device, cutting-edge technology. It's always going to be a bit of an outlier, but it is certainly true that we've moved from a kind of flagship price of five to six hundred euros, pounds, dollars to much closer to the seven, eight, nine, even a thousand dollar price point. And that is something that won't change as people keep phones longer, rely on connectivity in their daily lives and are also able to trade those values in. But Sean, maybe you've got something to add as well. No, I think that the, the, the trading market, I think, is central. We've been talking about it now for four years, and uh, predictions, which I know we've banged on about a little bit today, so uh, forgive us for that. But it's important because we talked about trading about three years ago, and we made some predictions around the second-hand value of your device being almost important to you as the price, the original price or the, the price of your new device. And clearly that's happened in the marketplaces where we have the privilege of being able to look at those $1,000 devices, €1,000 devices. But what it does is it creates a very significant set of second-hand devices to be able to support two things. First of all, those in the marketplace from which they arrive, those second-hand devices, to be able to hit price points because the lack of innovation of devices at the new end, at the front edge, doesn't seem at the moment to be enough to encourage as many people as were buying new devices maybe four or five years ago to part with their money and move to that new device because they're saying to themselves, and this is our research, by the way, this is my opinion, they're saying to themselves, the device I've got is, okay, it's not the best thing in the world, but actually it's not bad. It's doing what I've said on the tin. I've got got all my pictures are on here, all my apps are on here, all my music's on here, whatever it might be, and I'm happy to be able to stay on this device at least for one more round. And I realize also, very importantly, that there is a value to whatever I have. I could, whatever I see the price of in some way will be subsidized in some way by what I have in my hand. And I recognize, a little bit like a second-hand car, that I may have some value in my hand before I move on to the next level. The second thing I think is that, as Ben quite rightly points out, is that there is a very significant and very valuable market in these second-hand devices being moved elsewhere in the world to populate smartphones elsewhere that perhaps is a very value-laden product. So it's a very, very late segment. So we're talking about marketplaces where, you know, literally every cent counts. And uh, we're able to provide uh, very high-quality second-hand devices into those marketplaces and provide an ecosystem which allows that, that smartphone environment to emerge perhaps a little earlier than it would have done in those developing markets in particular, in places like Latin America, I guess Africa, and certain parts of Asia. We have to be careful not to be too patronizing about that in every sense of that word. 
but nonetheless it's a very it's a, it's an economic reality that, that we are able to do that across the board yeah, it's, it's very interesting how you kind of end up with this almost shadow portfolio of devices moving just behind sort of like the premium brand new stuff. You still have access to very, very similar technology, just perhaps just on a slight time delay. So I think it's hugely important to, uh, as you say, getting connectivity into the hands of as many people as we can around the world. It's very interesting as well that you kind of point out, not only from a, a subsidy perspective, like the sheer amount of euros, pounds, dollars that are literally floating around in people's pockets as they move around their sort of daily business and the value they associate with them, you know, I think is is incredibly key. But I think one of the things that we've seen, certainly from all of the carriers that we work with, is we've had a very interesting bounce back from sort of COVID times. So that recovery period. And again, when we kind of go back to financial crisis just over a decade ago as well, mobile seemingly one of those industries that if not mm. cruised straight through it certainly bounced back very quickly like it's it's almost dare i say it a recession proof industry or or even the one that does have that ability to recover incredibly quickly certainly some of the alarming things that we'd had never seen before appeared during covid times which was when we had quite a high degree of delinquency from customers paying their bills as a spike in sort of like the first wave of COVID. That seemed to settle down fairly quickly, but it certainly seemed to panic a number of the operators internationally that had never really seen that before. So I was wondering, Ben, if you might want to just kind of reflect on that ability to rebound within the industry, I think is quite important. I think we're very privileged to be working in a in an industry that has proved so resilient. I don't think there's room for complacency. I think you made the point, Dion, that we will have longer-term macroeconomic impacts on as a result of the pandemic. It worries me that we've managed to get through this year relatively unscathed, but the outlook is of great concern. Things like delinquency is a, a major challenge, and network operators are going to have to think about this. They're going to have to be very, very innovative in the way that they work with their customers because I think they've bought a lot of goodwill through their actions. For example, helping key workers get access to bigger data bundles, providing flexibility on the length of contracts, the monthly cost of contracts and those sorts of things. And obviously that's an area where you're able to help as well because using your technology, that can bring the capabilities to network operators to take a more flexible and more pragmatic approach at a time where there is a overwhelming realization that the world has changed forever. Um, mm. So yes, I wake up every morning and I feel grateful to be in such a resilient industry. I feel proud that as an industry, we have managed to do some great things during the pandemic. I think that we're seeing some great innovation to help with that. And I think that some of the behaviors we've adopted, such as video interactions, these kind of virtual engagements like this podcast have been accelerated. And I think that. Um, Satya Nadella, the CEO of, of Microsoft, made a very insightful quote right at the very beginning of the pandemic, talking about two years of digitization in two months, which we've certainly seen that continued. And, and, and therefore, we are in an industry where there's a huge opportunity to not only weather the pandemic, but give something back and add value as an industry for mm. people as we move forward into what are certainly uncharted and unpredictable waters. I agree with Ben wholeheartedly. I think that the operators who don't get the best press sometimes from, you know, the fact that my network doesn't work near, near where I live all the way through to um, my bill is wrong. And clearly all those things are valid. There's nothing wrong with those complaints. But 
the flexibility, the resilience, and I think the, the, the adaptability that the network showed in unprecedented times, at the speed they showed you that was encouraging it during pandemic, across the globe, by the way. Now, of course, our operators tripped up around the world. They did. Some fiber networks tripped up, some global networks, some mobile networks tripped up. However, they all recognized their position in what was becoming a much more dispersed, geographically difficult to reach group of individuals in every country in the world where lockdown happened. That said, I think that they also understood that they, ha they have a role both to their shareholders and to their stakeholders. And what they have to do is, is build a network which is both resilient and responsive to those new conditions that Ben's just, just recognized. I think that they did two things really well. The first thing was that they had that adaptability and that flexibility in place early on. And I think they've learned very much from that in terms of what they need to do going forward for their planning. Very, very significant things like priority of rolling out new 5G networks are going to change from the middle of cities to more suburban environments. That's because that's where the workforce is going to be for a while. And I think that they're seriously thinking about how to do that. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, and this is more pastoral, is that they were able to deliver a significant service, which to many people would be as important to them for their mental health and well-being as well as their day-to-day -day lives, a service which was alongside electricity, water, and gas in a way that didn't feel like they were being exploited. They offered, as you say, health workers, free data. They zero-rated significant uh, uses for the likes of uh, healthcare sites and so forth, which I think was very, very good. And they are also, and they've been talking about this since the middle of the first part of the pandemic, building their, their businesses to be able to serve almost as a bank individuals who will continue to rely on those services as part of their living and working lives over the next year or so, but may not have the economic availability open to them to be able to, to pay for it. But that's it, they're still a business. They're still a business and they have to deliver it in a way that's appropriate. So I'm not saying that they're being saints. They still have their challenges and they're not great at certain things. However, I think they should be given more credit than perhaps they were given in the first pandemic, in the first part of the pandemic, for sure. Yeah, it was interesting when you were interviewing Ronan Dunn, CEO of Verizon's consumer division a few weeks ago during the predictions events in terms of the the allocation that they put aside to sort of consume some of the bad debt that they were expecting. They obviously, you mentioned they had a, an additional allocation of a quarter of a billion dollars on revenues of six billion. So clearly, you know, they were they were fully braced for some pretty heavy impact. And, and I know from different carriers in different parts of the world, some of their delinquency rates had jumped double digit almost overnight. So as you say, it certainly threw them for a loop, but sort of, you know, coming through it and just doing the right thing. Ultimately, yeah. I think yeah. in Latin America, there were a number of interventions by the regulator that explicitly came out and said, you cannot cut people off from their mobile service during the, the time of the pandemic. To be honest with you, I think the vast majority of operators in those countries and in most others had already figured out that that wouldn't be a particularly good thing to do anyway. <laughs> so they were already ahead of the regulator there. But yes, I think you know their, their metaphoric stock has never been higher. As you say, they've been very much a stalwart throughout the weathering of the COVID storm. I'll not take up too much of your, your guys' time, but I think what I wanted to do in just terms of a, of a wrap question here is just to kind of point to each of you and, and just say, if we just look to the future out amongst sort of a one to three year horizon from a technology perspective, um, if you had to pick sort of one thing that you guys are looking forward to the most, that can be software, it can be hardware, it can be a development, it can be form factor, it can be an emerging player. You know, the choice is, is ultimately yours. But if you had to select one thing that you're looking forward to from a technology perspective in the coming years that genuinely excites you, 
what do you feel that would be if I had to pin you down to just one or maybe two? I'll start with that one, Dion. I, th- I think I'm going to take your option of two. The first one is, I think, near term. What are we going to see quickly? Uh, the rise of something that we have uh, branded as uh, pandemic tech, where we think that the need to adapt devices to the current global situation will be accelerated, be that thinking about ways in which you can improve the experience, adding sensors, for example, temperature sensors into wearables would be a great example to be able to track your health. But even other things like the physical design of products, making it very, very easy for people to clean products, you know, getting rid of nasty little recesses where germs can reside, and even you know, microbiotic coatings on phones and those sorts of things. I'm, I'm sure that we'll see that. Longer term, I know there's a lot of people very critical of 5G right now and a little bit of disillusionment with 5G, but I would say think about 5G as a technology that is going to set out the journey for the next decade. This isn't about this year or next year. It's about 10 years of development. And I think we're going to see some fantastic new innovations, which right now are almost limited by your imagination. And having lived through other generations of technology before and seen some of the skepticism when new technologies have arrived, I think that 5G still has tremendous potential to take many of the things we're doing today and making them even better and also delivering new disruptive experiences as well. Mm. Good choices. Good choices. Sean, some thoughts? Well, I think uh, Ben took one of mine, so I'll, I'll leave that one alone. For me, genuinely, the, the, the exciting area for me is the industry that's forming around the edge of the network. For people who are listening to this podcast, I'm not sure everybody will think, well, what's that got to do with me? I think, you know, why, why does the edge of a network have to make a difference to me? Well, the type of use cases that we're starting to see emerge by enabling the edge of a network and bringing the computing technology that is currently in servers that you can see from space somewhere in Europe or in America, right to the edge of the network, literally where the edge of the network will exist. And release up some use cases that we've been dreaming about for years. Things like autonomous driving is not physically able to exist at scale without the edge of the network and the compute available to us at the edge of the network being available to those type of environments. And I think that uh, we can drive one or two cars autonomously, that's not a problem, but to have a whole city autonomously driving You need to have an edge of a network which has the computing available to be able to cope with all of that scenario and the flexibility that's required. So the emergence of the edge of the network, I think, is going to be the most exciting thing. You won't hear about that on the high street. You'll you'll hear us talking about it, but the high street won't talk about it. And that's going to take another three or four years yet, let's, let's be honest. But I think we'll start to see that forming as we speak right now as the big beasts of the industry start to come together to make that happen. And that's everybody from Google and Amazon in terms of delivering that compute technology, Intel and Qualcomm, all the way through to the operators. And more importantly, the individuals and the companies who will decide what those functions and what those applications and those services will look and feel like. We don't know what they are. It's like opening a treasure chest and seeing what's coming. We just don't know yet. But I know it's going to be exciting, and I'm really looking forward to that. Likewise. Likewise. Well... Thank you very much, guys, for your time today. It's always a pleasure having a good conversation with you guys. And just for everybody else's benefit, they can be uh, found or stalked on Twitter. I think it's at Ben Woods and at Sean Collins. You guys were very early on the Twitter handle, so you got the the prime (laughs) real estate there. Well done. And indeed, at CCS Insight as well. So I encourage everybody to head over there and obviously check these guys out on a more long-term basis if you don't already. But thank you very much for your time today, guys. It's been a genuine pleasure. Looking forward to doing it again. Thank you very much, Dion. Great to be here.